6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 40 through 44. Having their beard shaved, their clothes torn, and having cut themselves with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. That's complicated. There's a lot going on here. These 80 guys, um, and by the way, these 80 guys, all but 10 of them, are going to get slaughtered by these 11 again. These 11 guys are rough. You know, they're Capone types. Um yeah, they, the, the ten were taken prisoners because they got greedy. They also figured they'd stash some food in a cistern, so they, they, uh, they kept ten as hostages, so to speak. But a uh, couple of things that are complicated. Uh, Josiah had thrown down all the altars uh, of the idols up north. These particular guys are a strange uh, mix of things. On the one hand, they've come here to offer, to, to worship. So they are faithful, at least in some sense, the direction. And yet, they also evidence heathen manners. The fact that they have shaven beards is inappropriate. The fact that they have rent clothes, they're ceremonially rent, that was prohibited in the Torah. And they also have gashes. They had been, they're ceremonial gashes uh, that they do. Now, uh, the... Uh, um, uh, this is also not only a pagan rite that's associated normally with Baal worship. They had a style of cutting themselves ceremoniously to, as, a, as a mechanism of expression. And um, the, um, you see some evidence of this in Mount Carmel with Elijah, where the priests of Baal were pleading for the, their god to bring down lightning and start off their offering in the big contest that Elijah had staged. And as the, in the evening he started, they were cutting themselves and so forth. Well, that was their way of intensifying their expression. That was associated with that. Incidentally, prohibited in Deuteronomy 14.1. The Torah didn't, you know, expressly told you not to do that. All kinds of things like that. Your Torah does not allow you. Tattoos, all those kinds of things are prohibited in the Torah. And gashing among them. And that was part of the ceremonial observance of, of, of idolatry. You included these kinds of things. So these people... But it's a little confusing to your first reading because, because because they are victims of that cultural background doesn't necessarily mean they're unbelievers. There's a lot of debate about exactly who they were and why and stuff. Um, uh, a good example, there are, there are Christian faiths today that are intensely entangled in practices that are not biblical, um, graven images and, and all kinds of non-biblical ideas. It doesn't mean that they're not believers in Christ. It just means they carry a lot of baggage with them that happens to be wrong or non-biblical. These could be very analogous to that. They carry traditions that emerged from the events of the last few generations up north, but um, the, uh, and incidentally, these are not Samaritans in the classical sense because the whole Samaritan thing really emerges after the exile. Seventy years from now, when they come back from captivity, that's when the, 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 some of these practices get muddied up, and that's where we have emerging out of that period 
what you and I associate as a Samaritan. The Samaritan of the New Testament comes from a tradition of, of worship and issues that emerge post-exile, I believe, if I'm correct. Now, these 80 guys then come to, bear in mind, now see, Mitzvah was the headquarters. It was sort of the, 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 the current uh, administrative capital, and that's where people, and there apparently was some kind of a, a um, at Mitzvah, some kind of a place to offer offerings, some kind of a, a shrine or something. So they came to, uh, to, uh, with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. So at least in some sense, they're believers. They're not idol worshipers except having this penalty of tradition with them, if you will, okay? And you read this just cold, is a little confusing because it certainly sounds like idol worship. What are they doing there in the Lord? So this is part of the time. Now, here's Ishmael, this leader again. He's a devious dude here. The son of Nethaniah uh, went forth from Mitzpah to meet them. Now notice this guy, theatrical, weeping all along as he went. And it came to pass as he met them, he said of them, Come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And it, was so, and it was so, when they came to the center of the city, that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, slew them and cast them into the middle of the pit, that he and the men that were, that were with him. There is a pit we're going to read about here. Uh, well, we read about a few, in a few verses and that apparently was built some 400 years earlier. Very famous cistern, in effect. And that's where he threw all these bodies. The thing is, which is stupid. It was not only wrong for lots of reasons, it was also dumb because the bodies pollute the water system to the mitzvah. It's a cistern. It's a huge, deep cistern. That's where it was a convenient place to dump all these bodies so you could cover up the slaughter that has been going on through who knows how many. And so when these 80 show up, they're coming with their, and we don't know if it's just 80 or if it's the 80 plus their entourage, you know. But in any case, this group comes and they go out to meet him and through deviousness and subterfuge, let them think everything's great and weeping and whatever that's all about, brings them into town. Why? For an ambush. And so, he slaughters all but ten. Now, why didn't they slaughter the ten? It has been traditional in groups like that to leave Vittel in cisterns in fields on the way for the trip back or whatever. And bear in mind, this land has been famine-ridden, so food is a non-trivial resource. And so the presumption, what seems to underlie the story is, is that there was either information or a presumption that these people had placed provisions along the way, typically hidden them in cisterns for maybe the route back home. And so they don't slaughter all 80, they keep 10 hostages and presumably torture them to find out where there's more food hidden. Neat bunch of guys. Sounds like Chicago in the 30s. Huh? Okay. Verse 8, But 10 men were found among them, that said unto Ishmael, Slay us not, oh yeah, excuse me here, I missed this part, yeah, slay us not, for we have stores in the field of wheat and barley and oil and of honey. So he forbear and slew not them among their brethren. But now the pit in which Ishmael had cast all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was that which Asa the king had made for fear of Baasha, the king of Israel. This is 400 years earlier, it's just a historical reference that that's uh, that put here for us. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with those who were slain. Yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot. There was express uh, information that these guys had the funeral. Verse 10. 
Then Ishmael carried away captives, the captive, all the residue of the people that were in Mitzpah, even the king's daughters, and all the people that remained in Mitzpah, whom Nebuzardan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Hakim, and Ishmael, the son of Nethani, carried them away uh, captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. See, uh, Ishmael very much here is the pawn or the cat's paw, if you will, of uh, uh, King Bailus of the, of the Ammonites. So he promised that he would sla uh, sl uh, you know, slaughter Gedalia, which he did, and he went at it and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, um, did a number on those people. Now, um, there is some, incidentally, some debate as to exactly when this is occurring. Some scholars believe this is no less than three months, I mean, she's no more than three months after the fall of Jerusalem. Other scholars date it several years later, depending on some technicalities that I won't bore you with. Uh, uh, there's evidence both ways. Okay. Um, now, needless to say, Johanan, who was also a guerrilla leader of sorts, isn't too pleased by all this. He's obviously got to be frustrated with Gedalia that he didn't listen. He tried to warn him twice, at least, and uh, it didn't do any good. Uh, Johanan is... Um, well, let's pick up verse 11. When Johanan, the son of Kariah, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, heard of all the evil Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, then they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and found him by the great waters that are in Gibeon. Uh, the city of Gibeon shows up in Joshua 18 and uh, several other places. It was a city of priests in the in the in the uh, tribe of Benjamin, and uh, it's about a mile from Mitzpah. It's not that far away. Uh, this is a familiar f name. Don't confuse it with Gideon. This is Gibeon, but uh, Gibeon is where Joab and Abner contended in Second Samuel two. Um, this is where um, Joshua and his men had a victory over the um, allied uh, groups under the, of, of the Canaanites. Uh, in defiance of the men of Gibeon. All through this, there's deep history and irony, and irony. But that re emerges really more with uh, uh, the more knowledge of this. The, the ultimate irony is for them to return to Egypt, which is coming in a couple of more chapters here. Uh, by the way, Johanan, there's an interesting emergence here. I don't know what to make of it, but I'll call your attention of it just in case you're sort of a hobbyist with numbers as I am. Uh, we all know that certain numbers in the Scripture seem to be suggestive of certain concepts. Seven is completeness. Uh, five is grace, it seems. Four is of the earth and the world, if you will, um, and so on. The number ten is sort of a mystery. It seems to connote responsibility. The number of the Ten Commandments. When Boaz wants witnesses to the marriage thing with the roots, he gets the ten men of the city. Uh, it's always uh, ten this and ten that, where there's sort of an accountability or responsibility uh, implied. Now, we've noticed that uh, that uh, Ishmael had ten men with him. There's eleven, really, if you count it, but it's always the ten men, and that uh, as if uh, there's a there's an overtone there. What haunts me is as I look at this, Johanan. There are ten of them in the Bible in the Old Testament. Not that prominent, but there happen to be ten, which. I see this reoccurrence of ten, and I have the feeling the Holy Spirit is you know, talking, giving us some hints there, and it has a little prize for someone who really get, digs into that and unravels all of that. And I won't deny you the joy of discovering that for yourself. 
because I haven't found it yet myself. So, all right. But I'll share that with you just to give you a, you know, the riddle of the week or something. Now, so Jonah in verse 11, the son of Gerah and all the captains of the force that were with him heard of the evil that Ishmael the son of Nahum had done. Then they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael the son of Nahum, and found him by the great waters in Gibeon. Now it came to pass, verse 13, now it came to pass that when all the people who were with Ishmael saw Johanan, the son of Kerah, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, then they were glad. That's kind of a strange reaction, isn't it? And yet, you get the impression that the people that were around weren't too impressed with Ishmael and his gang. They're glad to see, right? If I'm reading this right, the Joanna is showing up. So all the people that Ishmael had carried away captive from Mispa turned about and came back and went unto Joanna. That's right. See, they're slaves and so on. Uh, uh, went to Joanna, the, the son of Cariot. In other words, I always said, as I re first read this, I always had the priest, they just, these are sort of random guerrilla groups. It's clear that uh, Ishmael is a formidable force, and he's taking slaves. And so when Joanne shows up, there is a obviously a following that he can take advantage of. Verse 14, so all the people that Ishmael carried away to be captive from Mitzvah turned about, came back, and went to Johanan, the son of Kerah. But Ishmael, the son of Nephaniah, escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. So he lost a couple in route, I guess. Going to get rough. Verse 16, Then took, then took Joanan the son of Kerah and all the captains of the force that were with him and all the remnant of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah from Mitzpah, after he had slain Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, even mighty men of war and women and children and the eunuchs whom he had brought again from Gibeon. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimam, now, Chimam, not that it makes, just to give you a rough feeling, he is not far from Bethlehem, if I recall correctly. Let me check my notes here. I know I, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'm sorry, great. No, but I mean, it's uh, here, it's, uh, it's near Bethlehem, but it's on the route to Egypt. And um, verse 18, because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and uh, has slain um, Gedaliah, and the son of Hycom, whom the king of Babylon made govern the land. One of the things you can sense here is that the book of Jeremiah is piecemealed. You can see that some of these insertions, whether by book or whatever, keep repackaging context so you can get the sense of the fragmentary nature of the of the styling of it, which all the commentators have a problem with trying. In this case, there's no there's no chronological problem because it's all continuous. But you'll notice from the styling that there's constant repeating of context as if they're pieced in there. Okay, chapter forty-two. Then all the captains of the forces, and Joanan the son of Kerioth, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the, the least even to the greatest came near, and said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all his remnant, for we are left but a uh, few of many, as thine eyes do behold us, that the Lord thy God may show us the way in which we may walk and a thing that we may do. Sounds good, doesn't it? They're going to Jeremiah for leading. A couple of problems. The real problem is they've already charted their course. They're looking for God to ratify it. They're not going there to really seek his counsel. And uh, a couple of other things here. You'll notice that they don't say the Lord our God. You notice that? It's kind of strange. In those subtleties, we get an insight. 
Let we beseech thee our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left with the silver. Verse 13, that the Lord thy God may show us the way in which we may walk and the thing that we may do. Seeking for um, uh, leadership. Anyway, the real point here is, is they're seeking the Lord's, not his will, but his ratification of what they're doing. And that's going to show up here. And they're also doing something else. You'll notice as you hear them talk, there's a sense of distance between them and the Lord. They want Jeremiah to intercede. They want Jeremiah to be a middleman. It's interesting when people pray. You can often get a sense of how they, that sense of distance to the Lord. You know, you hear, hear many people pray with great, powerful phrases, but it's a lofty and distant thing, as opposed to, you know, when you hear Chuck pray, it's to his best friend. It's intimate, it's close. It's interesting how the, how the person's prayer can often evidence uh, where he really is. Uh, but anyway, verse uh, 4, Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you, and I will keep nothing back from you. You know, Jeremiah, do it says he'll pray for them. But he's not going to bite off on this idea of getting caught between. You know, I won't hold back anything the Lord is saying to you. It's your problem, buddy. Saying, you know, there's, you can sense even in the, in the tone here that, uh, that there's something going on. Verse 5. Then uh, they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be true and a, to be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not even, do not, that if we do not even according to all the things for which the Lord, thy God, shall send thee to us. Whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord, our God. Now here in verse 6, we get a personal pronoun, first person. That's a little better. First person plural, our God. To whom we send, uh, or possessive issues, but anyway, to whom we send thee, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord, our God. Came to pass after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Get the picture now. They're waiting around. What's Jeremiah doing? We presume he's in prayer. But one day, second day, pretty soon a week goes by on the weekend. Ten days they don't hear from him, or you know they don't. Jeremiah doesn't rush out and give him his first impulse. He's waiting to make sure you know that the Lord's communicating. And after ten, there's again ten though. You see the emergence of ten. I think that's interesting. After ten days that the word of the Lord came again. And I don't know what the Ten connotes here. Does it, is it suggestive of the Torah, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? I don't know. I really don't know. It's repetitive enough in the Chronicle to, to cause me to be curious mystically in a Kabbalistic sense. Verse 8. Then called he Johanan the son of Kerion, and all the captains of the forces who were with him and all the people from the least even to the greatest. And, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication before him. If ye will still abide in this land, then will I build you, and not pull you down. And I will plant you, and not pluck you up. For I repent of the evil that I have done unto you. Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. Well, that's pretty neat. And I will show you mercies unto you. Excuse me, I will show mercies unto you. 
that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your own land. But if ye say, We will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, No, but we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger for bread, and there will we dwell. Now therefore, and now therefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye remnant of Judah, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If ye wholly set your faces to enter into Egypt and, and go to sojourn there, then it shall come to pass that the sword, which ye have feared, shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine, of which ye were afraid, shall follow you close after you there in Egypt. And there ye shall die. Now it goes on, but let me catch up on a couple of ideas here. Interesting that in spite of all this, the Lord still sanctions them, despite all the ministry of the 40 years of Jeremiah. says, hey, if you will just, you know, abide here, I'll protect you. That's neat. If you're following Jeremiah, that's, that's quite a offer on the part of God, the Lord God of Israel. Now, they're afraid, this, this remnant group is afraid of the king of Babylon, because they've been rabble-rousers, they've bloodied the hillsides, uh, they've created nothing but problems for the local, you know, and, and they're nervous, they're frightened, they're, they're afraid of Babylon. And their plan, as it turns out, has been all along to flee to Egypt, Babylon's traditional enemy. And they want so they want to get, that was the whole problem under Zedekiah, etc. They kept making these, hoping to make alliances with Egypt, that Pharaoh Hophra would somehow prevail. And Jeremiah says, hey, don't do it, they're not going to make it. And they wouldn't listen. And even now, they somehow have this notion that they want to head to Egypt. Now, get the picture. Their land is bloody, bodies everywhere, famine, pestilence, sword. Egypt's peaceful. What's going on there? It's quiet down there. Their land, Judah, is the war-torn uh, uh, battlefield. They've had enough of it. They want out of there. And they don't trust the Lord to stay there. They're going to go where the grass is greener, presumably. And the Lord says, uh, but he says, if you say you will, you will not dwell in this land, uh, by saying, no, you're going to go to the land of Egypt, and you will see no, and there's always this, these three things. And there's war, there's not a trumpet, the hunger for bread. There's always war, famine, and pestilence. You'll see the three reoccur as a theme through the rest of this passage. And the Lord says, if you will only set your face to enter Egypt and, so to, so, and go to sojourn there, then it'll come past the sword which ye have feared will overtake you, the famine which ye are afraid shall follow close after there, and there shall ye die. So shall it be with the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to sojourn there, verse 17, they shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence, and none of them shall remain or escape from the evil that I will bring upon them. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as mine anger and my fury have been poured out forth upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so shall my fury be poured out, poured out upon you when ye shall enter into Egypt, and ye shall be an execration. I have to tell you what that is in modern vernacular. And a horror, and a curse, and a reproach, and ye shall see this place no more. The Lord can get right down to street level when he needs to. And he lays it on them right there. Ye shall be an execration, and a horror, and a curse, and a reproach, and ye shall see this place no more. The Lord said concerning you, O ye remnant of Judah, go ye not into Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. For ye dissembled in your hearts. You know, see, this, this whole perception of this passage I didn't make up. 
it's confirmed here by Jeremiah's, or the Lord's words through Jeremiah near the end here, that they were not sincere in approaching Jeremiah to find out the Lord's real will. What they were hoping the Lord would do is ratify or sanction what they had in mind to do all along. And how glib it is for us to look at this passage and say, gee, this guy sure didn't get the message. And when we do that, we should just pause for a minute and ask ourselves, how often do we grieve the Lord the same way? How often do you and I kneel in the privacy of our prayer closet, figuratively speaking, and go over a checklist of things, Lord, I'm on this path, is it okay? You know, we don't really say, what path do you want me on? We don't really do that. We say, gee, Lord, uh, if it be your will, can I do X? If it be your will, Lord, can I do Y? Rather than sitting back and finding out where he... Re- and I'm the worst offender. I'm saying this to you uh, editorially. I'm a hard-driving, sh- um, high-initiative, uh, creative kind of character. And I'm always charging off without any confidence or a comfort that I'm reading in the will of the Lord. That's the main, one of my major problems is to stop, listen to what he has to say, not, Lord, is it okay with your will? You know, if it be your will, let us, you know, get this done or that done. Uh, I'm guilty of that all the time. And how interesting it is, as we see here, how, how the Lord is trying to say, well, you know, they, they weren't saying, hey, what shall we do? They were hoping to get, you know, a sanction on what they're doing, uh, having already made up their mind. And here in verse 20, the Lord through Jeremiah nails it. For ye have dissembled in your hearts when ye sent me unto the Lord your God, praying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and according unto all the Lord our God shall say, So declare unto us, and we will do it. Nonsense. And now I have this day declared it unto you, but ye have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything for which he hath sent me unto you. Now therefore know certainly, that ye shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, in the place where ye desire to go and to sojourn. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.